welcome. This is the Head and Neck Quiz 2. Um, I'm going to uh, include the questions here uh, on the um, Facebook site, that's an Atapod site, and uh, what you can do is try and answer the questions. There are some, uh, it's a multiple choice, there are some questions where the multiple choice, uh, some of the answers are correct, not just one answer, but there may be uh, two or even three answers. And the thing you should try and do is uh, understand not just the anatomy, I, I guess guessing, guessing or getting the answer right, but understand the nuance behind it, why perhaps the question is asked and what the underlying anatomy is. And I'll provide at the end of this the answers specifically to the question. So you can listen to the first part of the podcast, try and answer these, maybe write them down and try and answer them, or print it off from the uh, Facebook site, and then uh, listen to the answers and, and to why they're correct at the end of this uh, podcast. See if that works for you. So there are 15 questions. Uh, there's also uh, a number of a couple of other questions that I want you to think about as well, which are not multi-choice, but 15 multi-choice questions. You'll see what I mean and see if it's valuable. I hope it is. <clears throat> the first question, question one. The ascending pharyngeal artery, A, supplies the eustachian tube. B, is a vascular supply of the eighth cranial nerve. C, has no anastomosis with the vertebral artery. D, the vessel enters the pharynx at the upper end of the middle constrictor muscle. Question 2. The orbit, A, is made up of six separate bones. B, fractures of the floor are rare because of its thickness and orientation. C, has an attachment of the lateral check ligament to Whitnell's tubercle. D, has parallel lateral walls. Question 3. The palatopharyngeus muscle, A, merges in its insertion with fibres of the inferior constrictor muscle. B, has a single origin. C, flattens the palate. D, is the innermost of the pharyngeal muscles. And E, has no connection with the salpingopharyngeus or the stylopharyngeus muscles. Question four. Well, I've actually asked this in a general term. There is a multi-choice question. But you can ask yourself, what are the venous drainage inputs of the straight sinus? That's kind of a separate question. Let's use the multi-choice question four. The cavernous sinus, A, is invaginated medially by the trigeminal nerve. B, has no relationship to the trochlear nerve. C, has a dural sleeve that continues medially as the diaphragma cellae. D, the dura fuses laterally with the greater wing of the sphenoid at the lateral margin of the foramen rotundum. And E, the dura of the cavernous sinus separates it from the pituitary fossa. Question 5. Little's area of the nasal wall, A, is the commonest site for epistaxis. 
B is located in the posterosuperior part of the nasal cavity. C reflects the Kieselbach anastomosis between the facial and the anterior ethmoidal arteries. D, the communicating greater palatine artery enters the region via the incisive canal. And E is innervated by the posterior lateral superior nasal nerve and the middle superior alveolar nerves. Question 6. The facial artery A runs deep to the superior constrictor muscle, B supplies part of the auditory tube, C does not anastomose with the ascending pharyngeal artery, D does not supply the sublingual glands. Question 7. The levata palpebrae superioris A has no bony attachments. B attaches to the superior tarsal plate by penetrating the orbital septum. C is innervated by the inferior division of the oculomotor nerve. D, the sympathetic supply, comes from the superior cervical ganglion. And E, the sympathetic supply to the visceral muscle, compensates for somatic loss in a third nerve palsy. Question 8. In the nose, the bulla ethmoidalis, A, is the opening of the posterior ethmoidal air cells. B, is part of the middle concha, which joins the upper concha posteriorly. C, lies on top of the hiatus semilunaris. And D, has the maxillary sinus opening anteriorly. Question 9. Emissary veins, A, are valveless. B, connect the superior sagittal sinus with the scalp. C, connect the straight sinus with the vertebral venous plexus. D, connect to the posterior auricular vein. Question 10. The buccinator, A, follows the line of the teeth in the same plane as the masseter muscle. B is continuous with the superior constrictor muscle. C lies on top of the buccopharyngeal fascia. D attaches ahead of the third molar tooth. E is innervated by the buccal nerve. Question 11. Regarding the nasolacrimal apparatus, A some of the fibres of the levator palpebrae superioris are inserted into the lacrimal sac. B. Tearing is supported by the superior salivatory nucleus. C. The lacrimal gland is not visible through the conjunctiva. D. There is no mucus in the tears. Question 12. The nasal septum, A, is supplied in its upper half by the anterior and posterior ethmoidal arteries. B, is supplied in the lower half by the sphenopalatine artery. C, has an identical blood supply with the lateral nasal wall. D, has a venous drainage exclusively to the pterygoid plexus. Question 13. 
The occipital artery, A, arises from the posterior surface of the external carotid artery and typically runs along the upper surface of the posterior belly of the digastric muscle. B has a sternomastoid branch which holds down the 12th hypoglossal nerve as it runs over the carotid bifurcation. C gives off a mastoid branch which supplies part of the dura of the posterior cranial fossa and D does not anastomose with terminal branches of the subclavian artery. Question 14. The sigmoid venous sinus, A, does not receive diploic veins. B, connects to the mastoid emissary vein. C, does not connect to the suboccipital venous plexus. D, does not connect to the occipital sinus. Question 15. The middle constrictor muscle, A, has a gap with the superior constrictor muscle filled by the styloglossus. B has its lowermost fibres extending as far as the vocal folds. C forms a gap with the inferior constrictor filled in by the thyrohyoid membrane. And D, the gap with the inferior constrictor is pierced by the external laryngeal nerve. So those are the uh, particular questions. Uh, you can have a go at those, uh, print them out, and then on the other side, little musical interlude, we'll have some uh, answers in detail.
Well, welcome back after that um, interlude. That was Chopin's ballad number four in F minor, opus 52, a little thinking music. It was played by Arthur Rubinstein. Um, we get to the answers and the questions now. So to remind one, question one, the ascending pharyngeal artery. Um, a supplies the eustachian tube. Well, the artery supplies the medial wall of the tympanic cavity. B is a vascular supply of the eighth cranial nerve, the vestibular cochlear nerve. The artery provides meningeal branches to the area of the foramen lacerum and the jugular foramen, and also uh, to the ninth 10th and 12th nerve, so not to the 8th cranial nerve. Um, so it supplies the dura mater of the posterior cranial fossa and the pharynx and the tympanic membrane. So C has no anastomosis with the vertebral artery. The artery anastomoses with the ascending palatine branch of the facial artery but also with the ascending cervical branch of the vertebral artery. So these are not correct. And D, the vessel enters the pharynx at the upper end of the middle constrictor muscle. So the artery actually enters the pharynx between the superior constrictor and the levator palati muscle. So you can see that they're all uh, really effectively uh, wrong. You might say that it supplies the eustachian tube because it's the medial wall of the tympanic cavity but that's the closest that you can get um, to an answer being uh, correct. Question two on the orbit is made of six separate bones. It actually comprises seven different bones. That's the lacrimal orbital lamina of the ethmoid, the greater wing of the sphenoid which forms the optic canal, the orbital part of the frontal bone, the maxilla, that's the horizontal extension of the maxilla, the zygomatic bone, and a little small area you remember of palatine bone, which is squeezed in between the sphenoid, ethmoid, and the maxilla. B, so that's wrong. B, fractures of the floor are rare because of its thickness and orientation. Well, that's definitely wrong. Blowout fractures of the floor are relatively common and that part of the bone is particularly uh, fragile. Um, the way people get a blowout fracture of the orbit is being hit in the orbit really with a squash ball which directly increases the intraorbital pressure so that the weakest point is actually the orbital floor which becomes very comminuted often trapping part of the inferior rectus muscle and the inferior oblique in a blowout fracture so that when people look up or upwards and outwards they have diplopia. So these are the um, uh, features, so that's a wrong answer. C, the orbit has an attachment of the lateral check ligament to Whitnell's tubercle. The zygomatic bone actually shows Whitnell's tubercle has an attachment of a thickened area of the fascial sheath of the eye, which is called the fascia bulbi. The medial check ligament attaches to the posterior lacrimal crest. And uh, that's the point, obviously, the so-called suspensory ligament of Lockwood. And that represents the osseous stability of the eye, that is, the position of the globe, leaving the eye really nearer 
the superior and then the inferior orbital margin. So you can remove the maxilla right up to Whitnell's tubercle without destabilising the stability of the orbit. Um, posterior movement is prevented by the rectus attachment by orbital fat and by the forward pull of the obliques. Um, so that is correct, C. D, the orbit has parallel lateral walls. Well, the medial walls of the orbit are parallel. They are separating the orbit from the ethmoids, but the lateral walls, we know, are almost at right angles to one another, so that's incorrect. Question 3. The palatopharyngeus muscle merges with its insertion with fibres of the inferior constrictor. Well, the lower fibres around the thyroid lamina do merge with part of the inferior constrictor. So that's correct. B has a single origin, the palatopharyngeus. The origin of the muscle is actually dual. It's bony and aponeurotic. Um, C flattens the palate. Well, the anterior head elevates the larynx and the pharynx and actually blows the palate upwards like a shell. And the posterior head actually does depress the, fat, the palate. So you might say, well, that's partially right, but in the question itself, it tends to bow the palate rather than flatten it, even though the posterior elements can flatten it. So we can debate it, but the point about it is that we understand what this muscle does more than the answers to a specific question, as I've said. D is the innermost of the pharyngeal muscles. Uh, well, the palatopharyngeus is the innermost muscle to form the palatopharyngeal fold, lateral to the tonsil, so that is correct. And E has no connection with the salpingopharyngeus or the stylopharyngeus muscles. Well, the muscle does communicate superiorly with the salpingopharyngeus and inferiorly with the stylopharyngeus. And that occurs between the interval of the superior and the middle constrictors, where the lateral and the posterior pharyngeal wall fuse. That's at the level of about the greater horn or cornua of the hyoid bone, so that's incorrect. Question four, I mentioned what are the venous drainage inputs of the straight sinus? That's not really a multi-choice question, but they are the inferior sagittal sinus anteriorly, the right and left basal cerebral veins, and the great cerebral vein. If you're looking at it, this is really about sinuses. Of our multi-choice question, the cavernous sinus A is invaginated medially by the trigeminal nerve. The cavernous sinus is invaginated medially by the oculomotor and trochlear nerves. So that's not correct. B has no relationship to the trochlear nerve, so we see that's wrong. C has a dural sleeve that continues medially as the diaphragm macellae. So the dura there attaches to the anterior and the posterior clinoid processes, and that continues over the pituitary as uh, the diaphragm acellulae, so that's correct. And the dura fuses laterally with the greater wing of the sphenoid at the lateral margin of the foramen rotundum. And that's also correct because the dura runs over the middle cranial fossa from the cavernous sinus, and that fuses over the greater wing of the sphenoid at the lateral margin of the foramen rotundum. So you've got kind of a fusion point near the lesser and greater wings of the sphenoid. V1 and V2 lie there in the lateral dural wall. 
and then I had E as the dura of the cavernous sinus separates it from the pituitary fossa. Well, the dura of the cavernous sinus does separate it from the pituitary fossa. That's absolutely true. The narrow posterior limit is at the foramen ovale, and the narrow anterior wall is pushed against the medial part of the superior orbital fissure and is plugged by the superior ophthalmic vein. You can describe also, here's another question if you like, the entries and exits of the cavernous sinus. Make sure that you remember these points like a corridor or a room. The entry is the superior ophthalmic vein, the inferior orbital vein, an emissary vein which can run either through the so-called foramen of Vesalius if that exists or more commonly it runs through the foramen of Ali the superficial middle cerebral vein, the sphenoparietal sinus, which is running along the free edge of the lesser wing of the sphenoid, they all enter the cavernous sinus. And the exits are the superior petrosal sinus, which enters the sigmoid sinus, the inferior petrosal sinus, which is effectively the highest tributary of the internal jugular vein, the pterygoid plexus, which really is joined by the sphenoidal emissary vein and the pharyngeal plexus, which communicates via the carotid canal. So question five is Little's area of the nasal wall. A is the commonest site for epistaxis. Well, that's certainly true. Is located in the postero-superior part of the nasal cavity. Well, we know that it's really the antero-inferior part and reflects the Kieselbach anastomosis between the facial and the anterior ethmoidal arteries. Well, Kieselbach's area is the anastomosis between the septal branch of the superior labial artery, which is the facial artery that's sort of retrogradely going back into the nose, and the sphenopalatine artery, also the greater palatine artery, effectively part of the maxillary artery. It can include both the anterior and the posterior ethmoidal arteries, but that's not a major part of the Kieselbach anastomosis. So in the spirit of that question, it's not really the anterior ethmoidal arteries. It can be, but it usually isn't. D, the communicating greater palatine artery, enters the region via the incisive canal. Uh, that's absolutely true. And uh, D, uh, where are we? E is innervated by the posterior lateral superior nasal nerve and the middle superior alveolar nerves. Well, the innervation of this area is more anterior, obviously. It's the anterior superior alveolar nerve, anterior superior, and the back is the posterior lateral nasal superior nasal, which is a branch of the pterygopalatine, and posteriorly and inferiorly is the greater palatine. So that is not correct. Inferiorly at the nasal vestibule is the infraorbital nerve, and that comes via the anterior superior alveolar nerve. So that's not correct. Question six. The facial artery, A, runs deep to the superior constrictor muscle. The facial artery actually lies on the superior constrictor, although branches do pierce it, but the spirit of the question is not quite right. B, supplies part of the auditory tube, the ascending palatine branch hooks over the superior constrictor muscle, but it does supply the auditory tube with a branch that descends to the palate and which passes between the styloglossus and the stylopharyngeus. So that's correct. C, 
does not anastomose with the ascending pharyngeal artery. Well, the ascending palatine branch of the facial does anastomose with the ascending pharyngeal artery. We know that. That's part of the external carotid artery anastomotic network. Another higher branch anastomoses with the descending palatine branch of the maxillary, which is another point of external carotid artery distal branch anastomosis. And then it says there doesn't supply the sublingual glands. Well, the submental branch of the facial artery running across the anterior digastric triangle does supply the sublingual glands. The deep branch of this artery anastomoses with the inferior alveolar artery. Uh, that's another point of external carotid anastomosis. So one of the questions related to this, what we're asking is, how does this artery tie in with other branches of the external carotid as an anastomotic network? And you can see that there's an anastomosis between the ascending palatine branch of the facial artery and the ascending pharyngeal artery. That's a point of ECA, individual branch anastomosis. There's one of the descending palatine branch of the maxillary here as well. So that's another point of ECA anastomosis. The deep branch of the submental anastomosis with the inferior alveolar, another point of external carotid anastomosis. So each of these peripheral branches of the external carotid has a separate anastomosis with the other. That's the point of that question. Question seven, the levator palpebrae superioris has no bony attachments. Well, that's not true. It arises from the lesser wing of the sphenoid bone, as does the superior oblique. It's the recti that take their origin uh, from facial attachments or from the annulus, but not from the bone. So that's the point of that question. B, it attaches to the superior tarsal plate by penetrating the orbital septum. Well, the muscle does attach via a thickened crescentic horn, if you like, to the superior tarsal plate and also to the superior conjunctival fornix. So that's correct. C is innervated by the inferior division of the oculomotor nerve. Well, it's innervated by the superior division, usually, of the oculomotor uh, nerve. A little bit of a, a trick question. D, the sympathetic supply comes from the superior cervical ganglion. Well, the cell bodies are there in the superior cervical ganglion, so that's correct. And sympathetic supply to the visceral muscle compensates for somatic loss in a third nerve or oculomotor nerve palsy. That's not correct. Sympathetic function doesn't compensate for a third nerve palsy. In other words, there's complete ptosis in a third nerve palsy as opposed to a Horner's syndrome where there's partial ptosis. So it's well worth going through Horner's syndrome again. There's an earlier podcast on that and also on oculomotor palsy because just to confirm the difference between complete and partial ptosis. Question eight. In the nose, the bulla ethmoidalis, A, is the opening of the posterior ethmoidal air cells. Well, it's the opening point of the middle ethmoidal air cells, not the posterior ones. The posterior ethmoidal air cells enter into the sphenoethmoidal recess or into the superior meatus. B is part of the middle concha, which joins the upper concha posteriorly. Uh, well, the middle and upper concha join anteriorly and they diverge posteriorly. So that's again a bit of a trick question. C lies on top of the hiatus semilunaris. So that if you chop the bulla ethmoidalis off with a 
pair of straight fine scissors, you see the hiatus semilunaris, the frontal sinus opens anteriorly, and then you've got the opening of the anterior ethmoidal air cells, so that is correct. And D, has the maxillary sinus opening anteriorly? Well, generally the maxillary sinus enters the hiatus semilunaris relatively posteriorly. Question 9. Emissary veins are valveless. Well, that's correct. B, connect the superior sagittal sinus with the scalp. Well, the parietal emissary vein joins the superior sagittal sinus with scalp veins, so that's correct. C, connects the straight sinus with the vertebral venous plexus. The sigmoid sinus connects to the vertebral venous plexus via the condylar canal when that's present. The posterior condylar emissary vein connects to the occipital sinus and thence to the suboccipital venous plexus at the back of the neck. And D then connects to the posterior auricular vein. That's, that's correct because the mastoid emissary vein connects the transverse sinus either to the posterior auricular vein directly or sometimes to the occipital vein. That can be bypassed by a connection between the transverse sinus and the occipital vein or sometimes there's a confluence of sinuses occipitally. But that's important because mastoid infection can lead to a sigmoid sinusitis and sigmoid um, uh, venous sinus thrombosis, which can be fatal. So that connection to the posterior auricular vein by the mastoid emissary vein is actually uh, correct. So there's a couple of correct answers in there. Um, question 10. The buccinator follows the line of the teeth in the same plane as the masseter. Well, it does follow the line of the teeth, but it's well deep to the masseter muscle. B is continuous with the superior constrictor muscle. In the spirit of that question, that's correct, because through its pterygomandibular raphae attachment, it is in direct continuity with the superior constrictor. So the superior constrictor is going backwards, the buccinate is forwards from the pterygomandibular raphae. So that is correct. It's a muscle that lies in series with the superior constrictor. C lies on top of the buccopharyngeal fascia. The muscle actually is a little defined by its fascial connections. The buccopharyngeal fascia actually lies on top of it, so that's incorrect, and the pharyngobasilar fascia below it, so that it's sort of sandwiched between the two. And then D attaches ahead of the third molar tooth. It actually has an attachment posterior to the third molar tooth. And that's important because infections in the tooth can then lead to an extension across the face. And then, uh, where are we? We'd say that the muscle arises from the outer surfaces of the alveolar processes of the maxilla and mandible, and that area corresponds to the molars in the mandible with the muscle being attached to the buccinator crest, which lies just behind the third molar tooth, so it's not attaching ahead of the third molar tooth. And E is innervated by the buccal nerve. And again, uh, that um, muscle is innervated by the buccal nerve, but its motor supply is the buccal branch of the seventh nerve, and the sensory innervation is via the true buccal nerve, which is a direct branch of the large motor branch of V3. So it is innervated by the buccal nerve, but for sensation. And make sure that you understand the difference between the motor supply and the sensory supply of this. The muscle is innervated by the buccal nerve, 
but its motor supply is the buccal branch of the facial nerve. That's the point to understand. Um, question 11. Uh, regarding the nasolacrimal apparatus, some of the fibres of the levator palpebrae superioris are inserted into the lacrimal sac. Well, it's got nothing to do with the L, uh, LPS. Some of the fibres of the palpable part of the orbicularis oculi are inserted into the edge of the lacrimal sac so that the puncture leaving will turn inwards so that when the eyes are open, the tears are sucked into the canaliculi and when the eyes are screwed up, the tears are also cleared. And there's an elastic recoil within the sac because it contains a lot of elastin fibres and that assists in drainage. So the question's asking you whether you understand the complexity of the movement of tears and the drainage of the nasolacrimal apparatus. Not the fibres of the levator palpebrae superioris, it's the palpable part of the orbicularis oculi that are inserted into the, la into the uh, lacrimal sac. Tearing is supported by the superior salivatory nucleus, and that's a parasympathetic function, that's quite correct. C, the lacrimal gland is not visible through the conjunctiva. Well, the lacrimal gland's divided into an orbital part near the lateral edge of the levator palpebrae superioris and a more superficial palpebral part, which is visible through the superior conjunctival fornix. So that's incorrect. And there's no mucus in the tears. Well, actually, tears are a complex mix of sebaceous material, which comes from the lid glands and the caruncle, the aqueous serous lac uh, uh, lacrimal secretions, which includes the antibacterial lysozyme, and there is actually a deeper mucus element from a few scattered goblet cells which are located in the conjunctiva. So there is some mucus in the tears. So the next is uh, question uh, 12. The nasal septum is supplied in its upper half by the anterior and posterior ethmoidal arteries. We've gone through a bit of this. The blood supply of the nasal septum is divisible most simply into four quadrants. The upper anterior is supplied by the anterior ethmoidal and the posterior superior by the posterior ethmoidal. So these are branches, if you remember, of the ophthalmic or internal carotid artery system. Inferiorly, the sphenopalatine is joined at the back by the greater palatine artery, and that assists in the Kieselbach anastomosis. And it's the anterior part that has supply by the superior labial branch of the facial artery. So supplied in its upper half by the anterior and posterior ethmoidal arteries is correct. B is supplied in the lower half by the sphenopalatine artery, as we've said, correct. Has an identical blood supply with the lateral nasal wall. Well, that's not correct. The lateral nasal wall is similar to the nasal septum, but it can be thought of in a quadrant separation so that the upper anterior and posterior parts are really the same, the anterior and posterior ethmoidal arteries. Posteriorly, the maxillary terminations include the sphenopalatine, the lateral posterior superior nasal, and the infraorbital more anteriorly. And then the most anterior part is via the superior label, so, a labial. So the blood supply is similar, but it's not identical, and it involves more, I think, of an infraorbital component. And then D has a venous drainage exclusively to the pterygoid plexus. We don't think about the venous drainage that much, but uh, no venous drainage is really exclusive. The bulk of the venous drainage of the nasal septum is, in fact, to the pterygoid venous plexus. But there's also drainage to the ophthalmic venous system 
to the inferior cerebral vein via the ethmoidal foramen and the cribriform plate, as well as theoretically by the foramen cecum, which is usually not patent, and directly then into the superior sagittal sinus. So there'd also be a theoretical possibility of communication into the pharyngeal plexus. So when you see a question that there's a venous drainage exclusively to one region, that's pretty unlikely. And we've explained why in this case. Question 13, the occipital artery arises from the posterior surface of the external carotid and it typically runs along the upper surface of the posterior belly of the digastric. Well, the artery does run actually on the lower surface of the posterior belly of the digastric. The posterior auricular typically runs from the posterior surface of the external carotid on the upper surface of that muscle. And these are important landmarks in upper neck dissections and lymphadenectomies. So A is wrong. B has a sternomastoid branch of the occipital artery which holds down the hypoglossal nerve as it runs over the carotid bifurcation. Well, that's absolutely true. The sternomastoid branch of the occipital is a relatively constant landmark for the hypoglossal nerve which lies near the carotid sheath at the point of bifurcation and that's important in exposure of the bifurcation in a carotid endarterectomy. The sternomastoid muscle has an inferior blood supply from the superior thyroid artery and knowledge of its blood supply is important if the muscle is used in a rotation cover of the carotid vessels. For example, in a patient who's undergone a radical or a modified radical neck dissection and who might have a local recurrence or need irradiation and vascular coverage. Um, I think gives off a mastoid branch which supplies part of the dura of the posterior cranial fossa. The occipital does have a mastoid branch which has a meningeal blood supply to that part of the posterior cranial fossa, so that's correct. And it says it doesn't anastomose with terminal branches of the subclavian artery. Well, that's false underneath the semispinalis muscle the occipital posteriorly has a connection with the deep cervical artery, which is a branch of the costo-cervical trunk. That's the second part of the subclavian artery. So there is actually an anastomosis there. The occipital artery has extensive branches, which include the sternomastoid, the auricular, mastoid, occipital, meningeal, descending and muscular. And it can supply also a lot of the ear and the posterior scalp and pericranium, as well as the dura around the jugular foramen, the foramen magnum, and the condylar canal. So it's a rather important artery uh, if we think of it in those uh, architectural terms. Question 14, the sigmoid venous sinus does not receive diploic veins. Well, it receives the posterior temporal diploic veins, so that's wrong. Uh, connects to the mastoid emistry vein. We've gone through this already. The sinus does communicate with the mastoid emistry vein and it can join the posterior auricular vein, as I'd said before, and inferiorly via a vein, sometimes running through the posterior condylar foramen, which is not always there, and which joins the suboccipital venous plexus in the suboccipital triangle. C does not connect to the suboccipital venous plexus, where we've just said that it does, and it does not connect D to the occipital sinus. So the sigmoid sinus receives the beginning of the transverse sinus via the occipital sinus. That latter, when present, runs down to the foramen magnum and drains into the lower part of the sigmoid sinus. So that's uh, incorrect uh, as well. So the only one there is connecting to a mastoid emissary vein. 
And <coughs> question 15, the middle constrictor muscle, A has a gap with the superior constrictor muscle, that's true, filled by the styloglossus. Well, but A is incorrect because the muscle separating the two constrictors is the stylohyoid and its tendon which attaches to the lesser horn of the hyoid bone. And that's actually how we remember the origin of the middle constrictor because it takes origin between the lesser and the greater cornea or horns of the hyoid bone. B has its lowermost fibres extending as far as the vocal folds. Uh, by the way, just to answer the rest of it, the, the styloglossus runs into the upper outer border of the hyoglossus muscle, which is more superficial than this level that we're talking about. The middle constrictor actually has part of its origin from the lower part of the stylohyoid ligament. So to come back to B, B has its lowermost fibres, that's the middle constrictor, extending as far as the vocal folds. B is correct. The middle constrictor has vertically disposed lower and upper fibres, and the lower fibres go down as far as the vocal fold. The upper fibres enclose the superior constrictor. C forms a gap with the inferior constrictor, which is filled in by the thyrohyoid membrane. That too is correct because the thyrohyoid membrane joins the hyoid bone to the thyroid cartilage and it fills in the laryngopharynx at the level of the piriform fossa. And D, the gap with the inferior constrictor is pierced by the external laryngeal nerve. Well, that's not correct. The thyrohyoid membrane is pierced by the superior laryngeal vessels and the internal laryngeal nerve. The nerve is the sensory supply of the larynx above the vocal folds, and the artery is derived from the superior thyroid, superior laryngeal vessels. The external laryngeal nerve, of course, is the innervation of the cricothyroid, little part of the inferior constrictor, the so-called thyropharyngeus, so it's at a lower level. So those are the uh, answers. I hope uh, you were able to do well, uh, and uh, we'll see you next time.